that um, re resonates this week, perhaps more than any other, that you can join me on since you, all, you will all know it for sure. Just a thought before we do it one more time, to think about this idea that God represents chesed, love, and kindness, and that when we hum it again, think about in, um, and taking that on in our life, taking on this commitment to living with love and with kindness in every interaction. So let me ask you, we're going to take a few tangents before we start. Avinu Malkenu, do, do those two words resonate for you? Are those old, outdated, patriarchal, I don't care about kings and fathers? Or do those resonate and really feel um, like one of many powerful ways to think of a relationship to, to God? So anyone want to share? How do you think of Avinu Malkenu? Avinu Malkenu. Our father, our king. Yes, please, Andrea. Yeah. Yeah, they resonate very deeply. And I'm actually working on in our shul, we're doing an, a kind of an art installation, and people are sketching time to one an hour at a time. So I'm working on a piece for Alvino Malcano, and I think they resonate because it's the ancient tune, it's ingrained in us. But I'm also working with uh, Imanu Malkatnu, um, you know, and all the various ways of naming the feminine or the non gendered God. So I'm bringing mm -hmm, that into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I think for me, it resonates, but I also sometimes have to translate in my head, you mm -hmm. know, to make it really relevant to me personally. But definitely mm -hmm. the ancient words are deep in us. You know, you know, you, you can decide if you think Freud was right. Freud and the like thought that if you had an, a, a good early childhood experience with your father, um, that, that, that this is a godlike person. And thus, it will be much easier to, to cultivate a healthy relationship to, uh, to God because your father is God to you as a young child. Um, and, and if you did not have a father, or if your father was abusive or neglectful or not present, then it will be harder to have a God 
representation. Now, the question whether that is true at all, and the question also whether Freud was too male-driven as well, um, would a child view their mother as um, an embodiment of God, um, powerful and, um, uh, and fully uh, capable and all-knowing as such? And so there is a trend today to um, reject gender, um, and there's an opposite trend to be all gender full. And so some will say, I don't want a God image, a, a male image of God, because God is not male, and so I reject that. And others who say, no, I believe God is male. I also think God is female and also beyond gender and all of these things. And so you can decide which one resonates for you. Maybe you like a male God. Maybe you like a female God. Maybe you like a genderless God. Maybe you like a genderful God. The God is everywhere on the spectrum of gender identity. So, um, so anyone else? An another person want to share? Avinu Malkinu? Yeah, Cheryl. You're on mute still, Cheryl. Sorry. There you are. Uh, I, th I think it's the music. Uh, that uh. is what, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's what resonates with me. Um, if you want to translate the English, we don't really. Oh, we lost you. Oh, sorry, there, sorry. Oh, good. Yep. Sorry, we don't really. We don't really uh, translate it. I mean, in my head, I don't. I know it means yes, our Father, yes. our King. I also mm -hmm. can think it means. I've heard people say it can be our parent, our guardian whatever mm -hmm. it's the music and it's mm -hmm. such a you know it's the traditional i mean it would be almost like changing the cold nidre <laughs> music and right. you know it's such an right. integral and emotional part mm -hmm. of this particular time so mm -hmm. no i'm not offended by it yeah yeah thank you yeah so you know there, there are, uh, for me i find it powerful for some prayers to think about the meaning of the words of the prayers and for others, I think I find it meaningful to not think about the meaning of the words, but to kind of surf upon the words, use the words to transcend the words, and ally either the nostalgia or the emotion that emerges from them to take me somewhere else. And so I think for someone, um, they might say that as well in such a case here, um, where if the words speak to you... Um, the, and the other way, thing you can do, of course, is retranslate. You can tra retranslate that as are my parents, my, you know, it's not a stretch, my parents and the majestic, you know. And so there are all these options here. Is there one more person who wants to say something here? Yes, Eileen, yeah. Um, I find that um, Alvino Mulcano, it's the Max Janowski music that I appreciate. When I was younger, I think I probably accepted of the words. Now that I've reached the wise old age, I question the words. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think it's too limiting mm -hmm. rather than being inclusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Okay, so we're going to come to very um, a whole range of conclusions as to what to do with uh, prayers that sound like that. There's an answer here that, yes, it's true, and we need to say more. There's the answer is, I don't care about the words. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not even paraphrasing you all. I'm just kind of giving some meta themes that um, don't even care about the words. There's the, there's the feeling. There's the, the music. Then there's the sense of it's too limiting. I need different words. So um, 
so I, I give us all the bracha that going into the high holidays, we can get what we need. I know this year, more than any other year, it's hard to get what we need. When I think of what I need from a high holiday experience, I'm not going to get it this year. And so we have to work harder. We have to work harder to get what we need on our own um, leading up to the holidays and after. I like to say, if somebody didn't train for a marathon and then they went to run a marathon, um, it'd be pretty embarrassing, right? Of course, they're going to be disappointed with the results. So to the high holiday experience, if someone's like, I'm not going to think it at all, I'm just going to get my ticket, and then they show up at the door, they're going to be disappointed because they're not going to be ready for it. They're going to be shit ready for such an experience. Um, they haven't done the work. They haven't prepared their hearts. They're going to leave with a critique. The sermon wasn't good enough, and the choir wasn't powerful enough, and blah, 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 blah. You know, and they might be fair critiques, right? But actually, we have to do our work. And so I give us the bracha that we can do the hard work to lead up to the high holidays so that we can get the growth and the reflection and the connection that we want to have. Okay, friends, uh, we don't normally open up with that, but I felt like leading into Rosh Hashanah this week, I wanted to have that. And we can certainly return to that after if we want as well. So this is a fun one. I mean, they're all fun. I think they're all fun, but I'm not, don't judge me for what I think is fun. Um, other people might go to operas and to basketball or football games. And this is my idea of fun. So, <laughs> so, and why is it fun? Because we're going to talk about Bishol, Bishol, cooking, cooking, Ofe, baking. Now I know very little about cooking and baking. I mean, I know a little bit because I watch it. I see it happen. I, I try to do it and I fail. Um, I even burn oatmeal. Um, you know, you can't burn. Who burns oatmeal? But I even <laughs> so cooking is very deep. Just like Cheryl said over there by Avinu Malkenu, there is a feeling that emerges. There's a feeling that emerges from a melody. So too, there's a nostalgia that is most deeply connected to the sense of smell. Right? You've heard that before. That um, that our capacity for memory of all the senses is most connected to our sense of smell. When I smell an apple pie or a strawberry rhubarb pie, I'm back in my nanny's, back in my grandmother's house. Um, and that's why Starbucks, you walk into Starbucks in Paris or in Bangkok, and you're in Starbucks in Manhattan or in Scottsdale because there's a smell to the Starbucks. Or the same would be true of a McDonald's. McDonald's, I heard, I never verified if this is true or not. They pump the smell of the McDonald's out into the parking lot, I was told. Have you heard that also? As, as, a, as a, um, a form of advertising, a smellful advertising, because if people smell it, they crave it, right? And so um, there's all kinds of things that happen with the power of smell and of, and of cooking. And that's why the home-cooked meal, the home-cooked meal might not even taste better than the restaurant meal, but the experience of seeing it cooking, of smelling it cooking, even the labor of love that goes into it. And so reflect a little bit, for those of you who are Bereshit, or, or Tanakh buffs, reflect a little bit in, in, the, in, in, our, com, in, our, in our conversational space, I, I want to hear from you, on some spaces in the Torah where cooking happens. Where are some spaces where cooking happens? I'm just going to name two right now, but maybe you'll think of more to share. One of the most obvious is Genesis 27, the sibling rivalry of Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau, they want to impress their father. They want their father's bracha, Yitzchak, Isaac, Genesis 27. And so they're going to come with different foods. And Rivka is going to very deceptively and lovingly, um, deceptively and lovingly um, prepare her son, Yaakov, who she wants to gain favor with her husband, Yitzchak, with the right food to impress their father. And so food is you to impress. They, they want to bring unique food to their father 
to please him. People cook for people sometimes to please them, sometimes to, to share love. It's, a, it's an act of love when one cooks for someone. Um, so Genesis 27, and how is this food used to impress the father? Now going back to Avinu Malkenu, how about the Avinu Malkenu? We call it korbanus or korbanot, sacrifices. We cook for God. Now, this is a strange idea to us today, the idea of cooking for God, because maybe if you're like me, the animal, an idea of animal sacrifice as divine worship might not resonate. But the idea of cooking for God was the way the ancient world understood expressing love for God. Not only the sacrifice of one of my animals, I might have only had four and I'm giving one to God, but also I'm cooking this for God. I'm offering this to God. Now, this is one way we might understand the act of making a blessing. I pause before I eat my cooked food or any food, and I say, thank you, God. I offer this food to you. And I offer it to you, God, in the sense that the energy I get from the food, the sustenance I get from, my, from this nourishment, I wish to offer back. I'm going to use my energy to serve to serve other people, to pray, to donate money, to donate time. I'm going to use my capacities to serve, and this food is going to give me that capacity. And so it's an offering to God and by me giving my energies through that. Okay, so think of some other cases, either in Tanakh or in Talmud or in just your own life, of how you think of, of food, in particular cooking, as a form of service. Okay, friends, here we go. We're at the 11th malacha, the 11th malacha of 39. So if you've made it this far, <laughs> past a quarter, past a quarter of the malacha, I'm grateful to you. More, more me to you um, because um, I couldn't do this without you. So Bishel, Bishel cooking or baking, and this malacha is concerned with enhancing food or even non-food items through heat, through heat. What a great invention heat was. If we think back actually to the Garden of Eden, this is why we make Havdalah Saturday night, because they invented fire as the story goes. They figured out not only how to bring heat to the world, but light, you've heard that idea before, how in this conflict to bring light, just not heat. <laughs> this malacha is based once again upon the work in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, of baking the showbread and producing dyes for the necessary herbs. I say that every session. I, I, soon I'll stop saying that, but right now um, I'm still saying that. To determine whether a solid food is altered enough to reach the level of bishul is measured by considering whether it has become machal ben drusai. Machal ben drusai, about half cooked. And it's actually kind of funny where that comes from. There's a robber and the robber's in a rush, right? The robber's in a rush. So he's got to cook the food and get out of town. Cook, I got to cook my steak, my T-bone, and then I got to get out of town before they catch me. And so how fast can I cook this before it's ready enough? I'm not, okay, maybe I want to eat raw meat, but maybe I want to cook it a little bit. Maybe, maybe you eat your steak well done, right? Maybe you, um, maybe you eat your steak raw-ish. And so he wants it makal ben drisai. It's got to be half cooked to be considered cooked on Shabbat. And the measure for cooking a liquid is called yad so let it bow. Um, the point at which one's hand would pull back from the heat, right? You put your water in the shower. Oh, that's a little too hot. I'm going to lower it down a little bit, right? You put your hand into a hot cup of tea, right? Okay, that's so hot. I'm going to pull back quickly. So that would be considered cooking.
the water. Actually, did you hear the wonderful news that we found life on Venus? <laughs> well, we don't know if there's life yet, but we suspect life. Everyone thought Mars, Mars, right? Because Mars is going to be colder than Earth, right? But Venus is going to be hotter than Earth, so it can't be life. Venus, I saw how hot it was. It was mamish. It was like, I forgot, it was like 500 degrees Fahrenheit or something, and maybe even hotter. You can tell me the exact number if you look it up while I'm talking. But it was so hot, and God so let it go, we're talking like 112 degrees, 110 degrees. As low as 110 degrees Fahrenheit is what the rabbis assess to be the temperature as to when someone would pull their hand back. They wouldn't just say, oh, that's a little hot for me. They would actually rip it back. If you think of a hot tub, how hot is a hot tub? I think it's like 102, maybe like a really hot, hot tub, 105 hot tub, right? How hot is your water pot when you cook it for your coffee or your tea? I think it gets up to like 160, right? It gets really hot. You're not going to put your hand in that water. It's going to burn you, right? Anyways, Venus. Venus is very interesting. So what kind of life is on Venus? been talking about this with my kids. What would that life look like? A 500-degree Earth, you know, not an Earthling, but a, uh, a Venusling, a Venusling. <laughs> okay, friends. So fire, fire. For the force that effectuates Bischel, cooking, is a crucial ingredient not only in the physical world, but also in our spiritual lives. Rabbi Yehuda Arya Leib Alter, who's that? The Sfat Emet, the great Sfat Emet. Here's what he says. Is it helpful or distracting when I put the source on the screen? Thumbs up for helpful, thumb down for distracting. I see thumbs ups. Okay, good. Here's what the, 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 this, this Hasidic Rebbe says on Parshat Sav. The Baal Shem Tov, of course, the founder of Hasidut, taught that there must be a point of fiery enthusiasm in our hearts. This is the meaning of the phrase, a perpetual fire shall be kept burning. The altar symbolizes the heart, and the fire is our enthusiasm. Remember the Nair Tamid? You know when you walk in the synagogue or temple or shul, whatever you call it, in front of, uh, above the Aron Kodesh, above the Ark, there's a, there should be a light that's burning, right? right? There should be a fire there that not burn out. If you're the janitor, then you're the one who finds the time it's not uh, burning. And then you kind of put a new battery in or whatever you got to do. <laughs> um, you know, fix the, fix the electricity, uh, you know. Hopefully it doesn't happen during a service. But, any, okay, anyways, the idea that our fire should always be burning in service, so too in our hearts, there should always be a fire in the heart. A fire in the heart. And that's what we have to do. Our spiritual lives is to keep the fire alive. If you feel the, if you feel the flames are dimming, we got to do more spiritual work to keep the fires alive. When scripture here says perpetual, it does not mean only in terms of time, right? The idea that, that the fire should always be lit throughout time, that our enthusiasm must always exist, but suggests that the enthusiasm must be because of the promise of perpe perpetuity. In other words, we are enthusiastic because of the promise that our inner fires will never go out, meaning it's not only prescriptive, it's descriptive. Not only should we never let the fire go out, there's a promise that it will not go out. This is the resiliency of Klal Yisrael. The Jewish people have the promise that we will always survive, right? It's not only that we have to work for Jewish continuity. We have to donate the Jewish continuity. We have to work to engage young Jews in Jewish life. We have a promise that it will be true. When we, back to Sfat Emet, when we commit to sustaining our engagement with all our heart and soul, then the inner fire will not go out. Friends, again, the Jewish people are the only people to survive. That might sound a little bit too Jewish, uh, 
supreme, too, what do you call it, too, Jew, too much Jewish exceptionalism. But look, I, I, the Greeks are gone. Where's the Greeks? The, the Egyptians are gone. The Roman Empire is gone. All the ancient empires are gone. Right? Now, that doesn't mean we should think, oh, we're the best and everyone else is the worst. Right? But actually, to think about that. Why did the Jewish people survive? All the other empires died out. They died out. They, they don't last very long, actually. Now, that doesn't mean we're not a threat. But what is our secret to resiliency? What is our secret to this perseverance? Yes, there's individuals who have cultivated this resiliency, many who have no resiliency at all. It's not a critique. They've just experienced too much. They just can't, they can't keep going. You know? But the Jewish people has a recipe for resiliency, for, per for perpetuity. Right? We're the only, tell me if you think I'm wrong when we talk later, the only ancient empire to still be around. Only ancient empire to still be around. Okay, here's the last paragraph in Sfat Demet. When our enthusiasm toward our service is correct, then any distracting thought of fatigue or disinterest that arises in our hearts will automatically be consumed in heat of the heart like wax before a flame. When this distracting thought is burned in the heat, a new light will arise there. This is why upon the altar all night is followed by in the morning the priest shall feed wood to it. <laughs> the new energy follows the darkness of doubt. And through the burning of distracting thoughts, there is renewal of energy in the morning. Nevertheless, it is still up to us to apply effort to bring this about, right? So that's to say, all day we have control. Thank you for that. That's a good image. All day we have control of our inner fire to nourish it. And then we go to sleep and your dreams may sustain you or your dreams may haunt you. Your, um, what do you call it when you can't sleep? It's not sleep apnea. It's, um, what's it called when you can't sleep? It's called, uh, what's, it, what's it called, somebody? Insomnia. insomnia. Insomnia, thank you. Insomnia. You might have insomnia or you might sleep like a baby. I hate that phrase, sleep like a baby. Has Whoever came up with that phrase never had a baby. You ever seen a baby sleep? They wake up every 10 minutes. What do you mean sleep like a baby? Sleep like a baby. You, know, you want to sleep like a, like a person with no concern in the world. A baby wakes up every 10 minutes screaming next to me. Ah! You know, so never give someone that blessing, sleep like a baby, right? But maybe, right, we should sleep like a, uh, like a college student. You know why college students sleep so well? They're concerned about nothing. They're con I mean, some of them are concerned, you know. But I, I used to work with college students. I'd say, what keeps you up at night? What keeps you up at night? Mary or Yosef, what keeps you? They say, keeps me up at night. I don't understand the question. What do you mean keeps me up at night? I fall asleep at night. I fall asleep at class. I fall asleep on the couch. I fall asleep eating ice cream. Keeps me up at night. So my job, you know, with some folks, you know, the job is to comfort people. With college students, you want to shake them up a little bit. You know, shake them up a little bit. They're not so concerned yet. Okay, they're concerned about the, they're, they're, they're going to go to a frat party or a sorority party. They're concerned that they get an A so they can get into law school, you know. Some of them are really concerned. They're concerned about global hunger and poverty. You know, some of them have, you know, you know, I mean, we have these amazing interns over here that are really concerned. But I used to work with college students. I say, what keeps you up at night? They look at me, uh, am I going to get some good cake or something? Yeah. Okay. Someone's got to go back on mute over there. Someone uh, back on mute. Um, thank you. Okay. Anyways, well, a lot of, a lot of distractions. So, someone's got to go on mute over there. We got, who, who's off mute? We're going to find you. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to shame you. Oh, no, everybody's on mute. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't going to tell tangents, but I want to tell you a little tangent, a little story. Can I tell you a little story? Okay. This is a little story about shame, about shame. Here's the story about shame. Um, I just heard this this week. 
a, ra- a guy came over to the rabbi at a wedding. It says, Rabbi, I became a teacher because of you. He says, really? Are you serious? I don't even remember you. What's your name again? He says, I was in your class as a teenager. And one day a kid ran into class crying that his watch was stolen. Kid was crying his watch was stolen. And Rabbi, you slammed the door shut. And you said, no one's leaving the class until the watch is returned. And Rabbi, my life was over. I knew it was me. And I was going to get kicked out of school. I was going to get embarrassed. My parents were going to disown me. My life was over. I knew that that point on, I was done. And Rabbi, you know what you said to the class next? You said, you said, everyone line up. When you walk past me, if you're holding the watch, drop it in my hand. But then you know what you said next? And this changed my life. And it's why I became a teacher. You said, I want everyone to close their eyes. You could have searched everyone's bags and found me and caught me and exposed me. But you said, everyone close your eyes. And in that moment, you saved my dignity. You saved my dignity for that mistake I made. And I decided I want to be a teacher. And the rabbi said, that was you? And the kid said, of course it was you. I put the watch in your hand. And the rabbi said, my eyes were closed too. My eyes were closed too. And so, uh, so friends, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, a lot of it is about second chances, second chances. Okay, maybe third chances. Maybe some people need some fourth chances, right? And maybe some people don't need a second chance. There are some things. We do have mass incarceration for some things. Um, you know, th- these are complicated criminal justice issues. But Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is the idea. The challenge is not do we believe in God. The challenge is to believe that God believes in us. The challenge is to believe that we but deserve a second chance because all of us have failed and we return to the table. We return to the sea door. We return to our hearts to know that we deserve a second chance too. And all of us are capable of teshuva, of repairing and growing. And so why do I share that? Because I said, I'm going to shame the person who wasn't on mute. And that, that's the tangent that emerged from that comment. <laughs> and so, uh, and so um, it, it is true. Shaming is a tool of social change. Um, we want to shame evil people, so to speak, because we want to um, disincentivize other people from doing evil things. And yet there's limits to that also. Sometimes change makers go overboard on shame. Um, and Yisrael Salanter said, said shame is the most powerful of emotions to get us to, uh, to change our own ways. So here's what he would say. We talked about this a few sessions ago. But he said, if I want to make a diet, okay, actually, here's my new diet I started last night. You want to hear my magical diet? Don't eat chips at midnight. That's my new, that's my new diet. It's ma- I recommend it. It's magical. I felt so, because at midnight, I say, oh my goodness, I got two more hours of work, two more hours of work. And I open up a, the, the blue bag. You know the blue bag? The salt and vinegar blue bag. Oh, you can eat the whole bag. So you want to know the best diet tricks? Don't eat a bag of chips at midnight. I promise you it works. <laughs> so friends, Yisrael Salantra says, you have a great diet. What do you do? You, Yisrael Salantra says, you post it on Facebook. I'm sure Yisrael Salantra spent most of his free time surfing Facebook. You know, and um, he says, you post it on Facebook. Why? Because you don't want to be embarrassed. And if you say you're going to commit to something and you don't, you don't live that commitment, you're going to be embarrassed. So make your commitment public of who you want to be because the shame will be a driver to, to, not, to, not, uh, to not, not fail to that. But listen, if you take anything out of this session, don't eat chips at midnight. Okay.
And if you do, okay, maybe maybe you got another you got another trick. Okay, okay, let's go back to our text. You can see I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit uh, uh, tangential today. So sorry, I'm a little I'm excited to be with you all. So when I get excited, I get a little tangential. Okay, okay. Indeed, God speaks to Moses from the fire, from the fire back to the fire, both at the burning bush and, and the fiery lightning witnessed at Sinai. I love this moment, right? It's, you know, th this artwork is so distracting. My wife and I have an old machloka, an old debate. Of course, she's right about whether to show our kids these images of the Bible, whether to show them the movie, the Ten Commandments and all these things. And I say, oh, it's a great movie. They got to see it. They got to look at this art. Let's show them what it looks like. And she says, no, no, let their own spiritual imagination cultivate the image. We don't need to show them. We don't need to hamper their the, you know, their spiritual imagination by showing them this art. What, is it, what does this little art do for them? Just give them some years to cultivate their own image of what it looks like. And then let them, after all, I mean, who was the guy who was the head of the NRA? Uh, Charleston Heston, is that his name? Charleston Heston is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the head of the NRA. And he's over there. He's over there with his uh, Rolex popping out. If you look really closely when he's at Yamsuf, he's at the splitting of the sea. You can see his Rolex popping out of his Moshe garb. It's amazing. Back then, they didn't know how to Photoshop. What was that movie made in the 40s, 50s? Okay, even if it was the 90s, they probably didn't know much about Photoshop. And, uh, and so you could see his, his Rolex over there. Anyways, the fire over there, the burning bush is teaching us. Oh, my goodness, I had a burning bush moment last night. So last night, I'm looking in the backyard. I'm about to lock up the, all the doors, and I see a light next to the tree. And I go, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to go out there. But what if that's the burning bush? I said, there's a 0.1% chance that God thinks Shmuley Yanklowitz in this moment should have a burning bush moment. 99.9%, I'm not, I'm not the guy. I'm just not the guy. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry if you thought I might be the guy. But I'm not the guy. So I say, look, I, I got to have a little faith here. So I walk out there and one of our, uh, the, uh, the, the, the foster kid, the uh, new foster kid in the house who just arrived, had left a little truck light on was a little light on top of the truck that was that was uh, shining on the tree <laughs> and so there was the burning bush moment but i said you know what we're going to talk about the burning bush tomorrow i gotta go at least see if it's if anything's happening over there maybe this is my moment maybe this is my moment <laughs> okay so anyways the, the burning bush moment is reminding us that that the burning bush is not something outside of us it's not it's not the little truck next to the tree late at night it's inside of us the burning bush is on fire inside each of us. We have to see it. Moshe couldn't see it. He missed it the first time. Then he, then he eventually noticed it. God doesn't speak to us. My, my father always says to me, when is God going to make God's great appearance? We're waiting for the split sea. Where's this great appearance in the world? I say, it's happening all the time. You got to look inside. It's happening in there. The burning bush is alive inside of you. Fire creates both a locus and an experience within which to encounter the divine. On the other hand, fire also defines a spiritual place as dangerous. As it says in Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Don't get too close. Don't get too close to the consuming fire. Or consider the idea that fire represents the hell represents Gehenna, Gehel, and forms of damnation for those who transgress, so to speak, as we see in the, in the, in the early texts. The Talmud indicates that fire is one-sixtieth part of Gehenna. It's one-sixtieth, a form of hell. Or the idea of fire as a punishment. They issued a proclamation in Sodom saying, everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor and the needy and the stranger with a loaf of bread shall be burnt by fire. Fire is a form of punishment. 
Similarly, we are told about the dangers of fire in the following story from the Talmud of Sota, 17a. Rabbi Akiva taught, if a husband and wife are worthy, the divine presence dwells in their midst. If they are not worthy, a fire consumes them, right? They're teaching over there that in a relationship, um, fire can both be a connector or it can be a destroyer. So too, relevant to this coming um, yamim noraim, these days of awe, these days of awesomeness, we see the tension between the themes of fire as a divine invitation and of flames as a reminder of divine dominion in the Unatanatokef prayer. Unatanatokef. The strength of the, of the prayer lies in its juxtaposition of the powerful imagery regarding divine might on the one hand, and the idea, the idea of divine closeness and mercy are accessible on the other. These two elements of the human relationship with the divine are played against each other throughout until towards the end of the prayer, we read of divine decrees issued on Rosh Hashanah as to who will be saved and who will not, and reminding us that some who will perish will face a fiery end while some will be challenged by water. This poetry is ambiguous as to whether fire in this context bears more positivity or more of a negative connotation. Perhaps that ambiguity is a necessary outgrowth of an image that appears earlier in this prayer. Earlier in Unatanatokef, we're told that a great shofar will be sounded, but the sound will be heard will be a still small voice. This line reminds us of the considerable drama that follows the face-off between Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, and the prophets of Baal, when Elijah has an encounter with the divine. We see that over in Kings, book 1, chapter 19, verses 11 to 12. Eliyahu witnessed a great wind, followed by an earthquake, and ultimately a blazing fire. But the divinity that Eliyahu seemed to assume he would find in those powerful forces was not there. Even a raging conflagration did not contain the divine reality. That force actually appeared in a kol de mama daka, a still small voice described in precisely the words borrowed to invoke the imminent merciful God in Unatanatokef. We may find God in the loud noise, in the power. We may find God in the silent, quiet moment. The rabbis of the Talmud use an image of fire to answer a question that they raise when they wonder how, on a practical level, the Torah could be written in heaven. Torah min hashamayim, however we mean that. This comes from the Midrash Konan, which I saw from Abraham Joshua Heschel. On what was the primordial Torah written? On parchment? But the animals had not been created yet. So how could one use their skins for parchment? Maybe on gold or silver, but the metals had not been created, refined, or unearthed. Maybe on wooden tablets, but the trees had not yet been created. So what was it written on? It was written with black fire on white fire and wrapped around the right arm of the Holy One, as it is written on God's right arm, the fiery law. This image of what does it mean to have words, to have letters before 
that are physical objects. What is primordial Torah? You know, um, <laughs> there is a far-right conservative social commentator and pundit today who used to be known as a Jew Jewish thinker and educator. He used to write books with Joseph Telushkin. But before he went off the deep end in some crazy ideas and, and being um, hyper-political, he had some very insightful thoughts. I'm sure he still has some insightful thoughts. Um, but one of his thoughts, um, which may resonate for you or may not resonate for you, is that God is not a being out there. God is the moral capacity within us to, f to listen to our conscience and know moral truth. That moral truth that we hear inside of us, that is God. And so that's a little bit of a humanistic, a very humanistic notion of God that he's ascribing to. And he's doing that to appeal in a, to a Judeo-Christian um, ethic beyond just a Jewish notion. But this idea of the voice of God, so to speak, in a way that is not written, one way we might understand that is the quiet voice of conscience. The quiet, vo the quiet voice that emerges in us when we reflect upon our choices, and then it emerges so loudly or so quietly. In our previous malacha of need needing, like kneading dough, we explored how Torah is called water, but also at times how Torah is called fire. Torah is called fire, right? Torah is called water, right? The sages say whenever it says water in the Torah, it means, it means Torah. But whenever it says fire, it's also Torah, the opposite of water, you might say. What? Now I'm reading from, now I'm reading from the Mechilta, a Midrash. Why was the Torah not, not given in the land of Israel? I love this question. I've got five or six answers to it, but we're only going to look at one today. Why was the Torah not given in Israel? You should have thought, oh, leave Egypt, leave oppression, travel through the desert, get rid of your slave mentality, get rid of that victimhood. Because victimhood is not how you lead. You don't lead from victimhood. You lead from transcending victimhood. Of course, you can never fully transcend it. But the generation, Rambam says, of slaves has to die out so that a new generation who can handle, can handle um, sovereignty can emerge because oppressors be, uh, the oppressed become oppressors. And if you are the oppressed, you cannot have sovereignty or you will oppress. And so let them die out so that a new generation can emerge. But you would have said, then give the Torah in the land of Israel. Why would you get it in the desert? It's not a holy land, so to speak. So that's the question of the Midrash. To avoid causing dissension among the tribes. Else one might have said, in my territory the land was given. And the other might have said, in my territory the land was given. Therefore the Torah was given in the desert, publicly and openly, in a place belonging to no one. The three things the Torah is... Okay, now before we get to the next part, so just so you understand the answer there, that, that Israel was divided up among tribes, and this tribe would have said the Torah is ours, and this tribe would have said the Torah is ours. It wouldn't have been everyone's. Or imagine today in the Palestinian and uh, Israeli conflict, right? Where was the Torah given? Or, or the settlers who want, will want to hold on to a particular area because that's Hebron is where the ancestors are buried. And Yerushalayim is where the temple was. And Sfat is where the holy Kabbalists were. And so on and so on. And so here's the place the Torah was given. right? And so um, the, the, the problem with 
um, uh, revelation being attached to one piece of land. Okay, we continue in the Midrash. To three things the Torah is likened, to the desert, to fire, and to water. Ah, so we already talked about water and fire. Here we see the desert also. This is to tell you that just as three things are free to all who come into the world, so also are the words of the Torah free to all who come into the world. Friends, is that Givaldic? It's Givaldic, right? The Torah's free. Nobody owns it, right? The, the ultra-Orthodox don't own the Torah. The reform movement doesn't own the Torah. The, Isra those, the Israelis, as opposed to those in the diaspora, don't own the Torah. Nobody owns it. Jews don't even own it, right? The Gentiles, because they hey, enjoy the Torah, right? Nobody owns it. Nobody owns water, right? Today, you want to buy water. You got to get a bottle of water. $4, please. $4 for your water, right? You want to get fire. You got to pay for your electricity. My electric bills through the heat, through the heat, through the roof. And then, and then nobody owns the desert. We live over here in the desert. Who owns the desert? Who owns the desert? Okay, interesting. Torah is also likened to fire because it brings light and warmth. Here's what the Zohar says, Zohar HaKadosh, over here in Idrazuta, Devarim, Parshat Hazinu. On the day that the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, was to leave the world, he was about to die about to die. He organized his teachings. His friends came to his room and, and he said to them, now is a time of favor. I can now reveal to you holy things that have not been revealed until now. By the way, end of life con politics are very complicated. Maybe you think, as soon as I'm not living a good life, I want out. Maybe you're thinking, never pull the tube. Okay, lots to say there. Barbara led a, my dear friend Barbara here, led a great session on being mortal. You got to read Being Mortal, important book, and you can listen, and, um, and some important conversations about end-of-life stuff there. But one might say, um, and this doesn't have to do with those politics or economic questions, one might say the last moments of life are very powerful. If you have been with someone dying, you might know that to be true. And um, it can also be true that we want, and this is one of the worst tragedies of COVID, dying alone, dying alone. But one might say there are things we reveal based on a new experience in those last moments that we could never have revealed otherwise. Something that happens. Sometimes someone might get them in trouble. They say something to someone in the end, which is contrary to everything else they said in life. They say, oh, I give the house to you, my son. Wait a minute. The will just said we all get the house. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He gets the house. You are my favorite daughter. Oh, my goodness, favorite daughter. I thought we were, you loved us all, right? So the, sometimes you get, in, so you get in a little trouble at those last moments. Keep your mouth shut a little bit, right? But also, there's amazing things. My father never told me he loved me. And in that last minute, right? That last moment, they said they believed in God. I didn't even know. Whatever the case is, something happens in that moment. Okay, sorry, I'm taking a lot of tangents here. Okay, back to the, back to the Zohar. All that day, the fire never left his room, and there was no one who was able to approach as the light and the fire were surrounding him. After he passed away, and they came to bury him, the fire flew into the air and danced before him. A voice was heard from the heavens saying, come and gather every year from the Chilula, the anniversary of the Rashbi. This is why, friends, we have a bonfire on Lagba Omer. 
the bonfire on Lagba Omer is because of the Zohar here, because it is the anniversary of the death. It's the yard site of the Rashbi. It's also my wedding anniversary. So more importantly, when you make a bonfire, you're celebrating my wedding anniversary. So thank you for that. Thank you for honoring our, thank you for your, all those years you've been honoring our family, didn't even know. Um, and so that we're, the Rashbi has this fire that emerges and the fire, this is also why we relight a yard site candle we write a yard site candle to remember the passing of the person, the fire that still resembles the fire in their heart. The fire in their heart is never gone. We keep the fire in their heart alive. And friends, actually, by lighting that yard site candle, we're also lighting the yard site candles that they lit before them. And we're teaching our children or grandchildren or whoever, or other people who would light candles for us unknowingly as part of Klal Yisrael, because we light candles for each other as part of the Jewish people. It's not just children. We're doing that to keep alive their memory and their fire. Okay, my goodness, we're not even to the conversation yet. I'm sorry. But we did a little early on. So I know we're, we're, we're going off script a little bit. Okay, so here we go, friends. Now, when it comes to mixing the physical and the spiritual, food and fire, which are mixed when we perform bishul, cooking our malacha, it sounds mystical and maybe even exciting. But our tradition also teaches that cooking can be cruel, cruel. Nachmanides, the Ramban, writes over here, in his commentary on Devarim 1421, the understanding of you shall be a holy nation to Hashem your God, a goy kadosh, a holy nation, has to do with you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk, right? Mixing meat and milk. Because it is not a disgusting food, but rather it is prohibited because we must deal with, the, with our food in a holy way or that we must be holy and not be cruel by milking a mother and taking that milk to cook it in its offspring. And even though this prohibition will get extended to include all milk, because all nursing mothers are called aim, mother, and all offspring are nurse are called gadi, and cooking of this time type is cruel. So in fact, the dairy industry is a um, is an is the intersection of a feminist issue and an animal rights issue, because of course all milk comes from the exploitation of female cows. Right, and so this exploitation that's coming over there, and so to killing, uh, cooking a kid in its mother's milk, the Ramban felt that we need to sensitize ourselves to the pain of others, including animals, and so this type of cooking is cruel to cook um, a cheese on my burger or any type of dairy in my meat, um, and so we want to avoid such acts, not because it's going to taste bad. It's going to taste better, but I want to make a pitch for vegan cheese. Woohoo! Vegan cheese. I want to make a pitch for vegan cheese. Maimonides explains how cooking is only one of the three obitions, prohibitions that emerges from this animal welfare principle. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to skip over this next source in the interest of time, but just suffice it to say, Bishel comes up in these three ways um, around um, not benefiting from it, not, not cooking it, or, or, um, uh, or eating it. Okay, now to conclude, Cooking, of course, can also be compassionate, not just cruel. We cook for those we love. We cook for guests. We cook for the hungry. The ability to cook is not only about ethics to animals, generosity to other humans, but also about our own health. Cooking is a spiritual practice of yesh me yesh, cooking something new from something old. Through unique com combinations, we transform objects into something palatable, nourishing, and enjoyable. This is how all of life should be, friends. We take the raw and transform it into something wholesome. Every Shabbat, when we pause from our normal cooking and reflect upon that which has already been cooked, we can realize this gift that we have been given. Indeed, it is a gift. 
that can be passed forward for all to cherish. So friends, I'm sorry I only left 13 minutes instead of my normal 40 to 45 minutes to talk. But instead of me responding to each person, I want to take a few questions and thoughts all at once, and then I'll do just a concluding response. So the floor is open. Don't forget to unmute yourself. It seems to me that fire is yin and yang. Ah. It's both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's based on its intention. Mm -hmm. Great, great, great question. We'll come back to that or comment. Yep, someone else? I know we put a ton on the table today. Rob? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd like to make a comment. I'd like to get back to fire. I have a tiny little um, piece to share that in doing research about Elul, I found out that in Eastern Europe, Elul arrived when the plums were purple and ripe and the pears were ready for picking, right? We're all making plum kuchen. And the Jews called Elul the time of the flamen und de baron, the plums and pears. In Yiddish, these two words have additional meanings in flamen, flames, and baron means to burn. So it kind of brings up the holes you were talking about to uh, a time to search our hearts and to seek God with fiery, burning intensity. Mm. And I, I live in Northern California, and we have had smoke every single day from the fires that are over in the next valley in North. And the awesome images of the fiery God and the power of God in that is, and the danger is so close to us. So mm. it's a really living reality right now for all of us. Wow, wow. thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Someone else? Well, just based on what Andrea said, it's fire is destruction, is, is total destruction and mm. danger. Mm -hmm. Looking at what's happening in California is terrifying. It's mm -hmm. right up the coast. It's actually starting to hit British Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, that's just another thought on fire. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good. Someone else? Something else that came up for you. Oh, hi, I had a question. So, not really about fire so much, but the idea of the malachot as uh, not, what's the right word? Not exactly emulating, like we want to stop emulating um, some of God's more creative acts on Shabbat, mm -hmm. am I right? So mm -hmm. would, you, would you say that one of the reasons why we don't want to bake or cook on Shabbat is that, um, you know, the human being is actually uh, the recipe of, say, God putting all these different atoms together using, like, a certain recipe to create people. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we don't want to do that as a, as a creative act. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Good. I'm going to make a note to come back to that, too. Awesome. Thanks, AJ. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Okay, let me respond a little bit, and then uh, actually, let me give a minute because I want to. Uh, if there's someone else who wants to jump in, and then I'll and then I'll um, I'll circle back. Anyone we didn't hear from yet? Okay, so um, I'll, I'll so I'll share a few things, and then I'll open it up again. So firstly, yeah, this idea of fire is the yin and yang, constructive and destructive. Yeah, we see that today more than ever, both from firearms 
um, the destructive fires in the Northwest and uh, wishing for healing and, and calm over there. Um, yeah, so many other forms of fire, um, houses burning down and um, yeah, this destructive, uh, the destructive nature of fire and how fast it can spread, how fast it can spread. And yet also the constructive nature of how little we would be able to do as human civilizations without fire, one of the greatest, one of the greatest of human inventions. And, um, and uh, yeah, and that yin and yang, I think, is true for everything in Jewish thought, that actually there are few things which are purely good in Jewish thought, few things that are purely good. Um, we might be able to create a short list, but most which can be abused or channeled for good. And that is the relationship, that is how I understand the Jewish tradition's relationship to objects and, and to energy. And to go back to this as emotions, the idea that fire in the heart can be enthusiasm. You need this in spiritual life. You need this in, roman in romanticism, right, to keep the flames alive. You need this in, in a passion in one's work, to remain excited about the mission, right? And yet there can be zealotry. There can be zealotry. There can be impulse, an, an impulsive nature, right? That one is too um, eager or earnest, right? So too, a little bit of rage can be helpful when it's, when it's constrained. And then there's people who are destructive and, um, and don't have control of their anger and rage, right? The fire in the heart can be, can be very constructive, um, very destructive. It can also be very conjunctive or very disjunctive, that's to say, bring us together or separate us apart. Fire as well can burn down, but it can also meld, is meld the right word? Mold, I don't know, meld, meld together? together? Yeah, to meld yeah. together. If I'm gonna take two objects and use fire to meld them together. Uh, is there another word, is that the right word? Okay, meld, okay. So, um, and then to this point about the creative act, um, how much creativity comes from this fire, the fire of innovation. Um, and AJ's interesting, interesting insight there that, that humans are cooked. Humans are cooked. Um, you know, we are, there's a recipe that God has for each individual, so to speak. Uh, ingredients are put in and cooked to produce each of us this constructive process of creating each human um, as unique. So, you know, what's interesting about Selim Elohim, humans creating the image of God, according to Yitz Greenberg, is that it has three components. We, the, the one we talk about most often is dignity. We have infinite dignity because we're creating the image of God. But the other two are equality, and then something which might seem to be an opposite of equality or at odds with equality, but it need not be, which is uniqueness. Right? The capitalists don't like the, the socialists because they say equality, equality is not going to get anywhere. We need uniqueness. People need inspiration to create and, and innovate. And everyone's going to be different. Don't treat everyone the same and equal. People need motivation to be themselves, right? Okay, we can respond to that, but that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But dignity, equality, and uniqueness. And so our recipes, part of the recipe of the human foundation, what's constitutive of the human experience is that we are fundamentally equal. We're fundamentally the same. We're fundamentally have 
carry dignity in the same ways, whether we're wealthy or poor, black or white, man or woman, gay or straight, whatever we are, we're fundamentally equal and dignified, and yet we are fundamentally unique. This is at odds in feminist thought. Some feminists want to say um, men and women are the same, don't treat us as different, and some feminists want to say men and women should be treated equally but we are fundamentally different as men and women. Our experiences are fundamentally different. Yes, we should have equal rights, but we are fundamentally different. It's not just, you know, biological differences, but also our spiritual, psychological makeup is different. Okay, we might fall, up, fall out in different places on this. This is also interesting in cultural anthropology. Is the, China, the, the Chinese villager, is their human psyche fundamentally the same as the, the guy on Wall Street in Manhattan, right? Are these two people like different creatures? Are they fundamentally the same, even though they're living different, different lives? Okay, so there's a lot to say there. But what is the recipe, as AJ brings up, for the creation of the human being? When we cook, if you do something fun, slightly different. Okay, you want to hear my slightly different thing last night? I forgot the nuggets were in the oven for 45 minutes. I overbaked the nuggets for 45 minutes. Boy, am I ever going to roll my eyes again when Shoshana burns something, as if I should ever roll my eyes when she burns something. But I'm like, geez, how could you burn something? 45 minutes, I had the nuggets there. I, in fact, I think probably 50% chance if I cook something, I burn it. But it turns out, actually, that these nuggets, the kids loved it. They're like, oh, I want these burnt nuggets. Oh, they love the burnt nuggets. I, I, I was always undercooking the nuggets. So sometimes, actually, um, you, 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 know, you can mess up the recipe a little bit and it turns out a little bit better. You know, our grandparents who used to cook for us, you know, they put a little bit more oil and sugar in than uh, we use these days that we've been advised to. That's why we can't re replicate those uh, recipes we got because those things were, oh, it was like a bag of sugar in the apple pie. You know? <laughs> okay. All right. One more comment or question before we wrap up. Okay, friends, let's end the way we began. Friends, I give you the bracha. Please bless me back that we should connect we should connect most deeply with the acts we're doing each day to continue to elevate them, to continue to nourish them. But friends, here's a Kiddush. Ready for a Kiddush? We were taught in ki as kids, maybe I think you were too, that Judaism is about serving. We want to sacrifice. Okay, maybe that's true. But here's another piece to it. Judaism is here to serve us. Now, that's not selfish. A piece of Judaism is to nourish us. The prayers are not just about serving God, about sacrificing to show up at temple or synagogue, even though I don't want to be there. The, the, what, the prayers, the rituals are here to rejuvenate us. Let them do that for us these high holidays. Let them not just be a sacrifice. Let them nourish us. If they're not nourishing us, do it a little differently. They're here to serve us. They're a gift to us. They're a gift to us so that they can recharge us. They can give us fire so we can cook a great apple pie. We can cook a great world together, constantly reinventing this world around us. Shana Tova. And I hope to see you next week because we're back to 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock Pacific. I'm sorry for the change, but we are back to 10 o'clock Pacific, um, 1 o'clock Eastern.
Have a wonderful day. God bless. Happy New Year to good health and happiness and long Thank life. You. Long life. Thank you. 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 Th